Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Rise podcast, where we connect with inspiring and motivational guests to hear their experiences in developing their resiliency, identity, strength, and empowerment. I'm your host, Aaliyah Miller, and today I am joined by a force to be reckoned with in both the neuroscience and fitness communities. Dr. Allison Brager specializes in sleep, circadian rhythms, and neuroscience research. She's the recipient of two National Research Service Awards and a National Academies of Sciences Fellowship in order to examine the mechanisms of developing physiological resiliency to extreme stress in extreme environments. Her work spans from clinical laboratory findings to performance during military operations and elite athletics to studying physiology and behavior in one of the most austere places in the world, Antarctica. As an elite athlete herself, Dr. Brager has leveraged her experience to help develop the first mental health handbook for the NCAA. She sits on sleep-related working groups for the NCAA, the federal government, and NATO. She's a two-time CrossFit Games team athlete, a Division I collegiate athlete, and presently a master's athlete in CrossFit and track and field. In addition to more than 35 peer-reviewed articles in flagship journals, she's the author of the book Meathead, Unraveling the Athletic Brain. That is um, quite an impressive resume, (laughs) and that's just the abbreviated version. (laughs) I'm so excited to have you on today, Allison. How are you? Oh my gosh, it's so nice to, uh, I am so excited to nerd out. I guarantee we'll probably use some uh, big acronyms far beyond the army to to describe different brain areas, (laughs) drop the word dopamine or serotonin or start talking about biochemical pathways. I you know, love it. Talking I to love a fellow neuroscientist, I'm sure we will. <laughs> so uh, to get started, um, how did you end up where you are today? Obviously, you've had uh, quite a plethora of experiences. <laughs> um, so when I was in high school, I, I competed in gymnastics and dance year round. Uh, Random fun fact, I used to spend summers dancing on cruise ships and in Disney World. So basically my parents would just like leave me in the hands of my friends who I danced with at the company and my dance teacher for the summer. And we'd travel around the country and the world dancing. Uh, but my dance teacher's husband, she was, or he was a professor at Youngstown State University, which is um, where I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio. And he always told me to plan my career around my lifestyle and not my lifestyle around my career. Um, And the reason for that is because, uh, I mean, you know, this is as an academic, it's, uh, it's grueling. And if you don't love what you do, if you're in it for the money or the prestige or something else beyond passion, then you're not going to be in it for the long haul. It's, you know, there's some neuroscience research to support that now that you've just passion and motivation drive everything. Um, and so really that's how I, I got to, to where I am today is I, you know, just have fun along the way and try to do the best I can on, on a daily basis. You know, I think uh, a lot of times in the army in particular, it's easy to get caught up on oh, if I don't do a good job, then I'm not going to get a good evaluation or I'm not going to get promoted. And I think when people pigeonhole themselves in that regard, then they really limit um, what they're capable of. So um, yeah, that's, that's my best advice is always plan your, uh, you know, career around your lifestyle. I like it. So one of the things that you mentioned uh, in the bio that you sent me was 
um, researching how we develop physiological resiliency to extreme stress. And with this being a podcast uh, about resiliency, um, what does the science tell us? How do we, how do we develop that resiliency? Sure. Um, So some of my answer you will will not like uh, because it it goes back to um, Christopher Watkins once said, there's nature versus nurture and nature always wins. Um, The first piece of resiliency is genetics. Um, You either have the genetic blueprint or you don't. Um, What's really unique about, you know, us as humans is there's great variation in our genetic code. Um, It's driven by these naturally occurring mutations called single nucleotide polymorphisms. Um, And we do find in the lab when we push people to their extreme, um, either through sleep deprivation, thermal stress, exercise, um, and even uh, psychological stress, that at the end of the day, if you have a a certain genetic blueprint, you're going to do better than somebody else. However, there can be trade-offs with these genetic blueprints. Uh, I can provide an example. Um, So a lot of the work I do revolves around uh, very extreme cases of sleep deprivation where we sleep deprive people for a minimum of 40 hours. And we can sometimes sleep deprive them for up to 84 hours at a time. Uh, We used to go out to 96 hours, but um, And the reason we're doing this is because we're trying to mimic combat operations. Um, I myself, when I was deployed, the the longest I was awake was 70 hours. So it's not uncommon. And when you were deployed, I'm sure you've been awake for far longer than than you wanted to. Um, But in doing this research, we've also paired it with uh, caffeine dosing schedules. So you might know that the Army has developed a lot of caffeine dosing schedules over the years. Um, so much so that we even have an app now for it called Peak Alert, um, where you can go in and, you know, put in what kind of drink you like to drink, and then it'll give you a caffeine dosing schedule. Uh, but I say all this because we usually find that if you have the genetic blueprint for resiliency to sleep deprivation, meaning you have less cognitive impairment during sleep deprivation, you're also that same person who is very tolerant to caffeine. Um, that is me. I, uh, I drink a lot of coffee. Um, I don't necessarily need it. It's just, uh, you know, I'm addicted to it. Um, but I'm also very resilient to sleep deprivation. Um, and so that's what we mean by a genetic trade-off is it's not like a be all end all. And that if you are superior because of your genetics in one capacity, it means that you're superior in all capacities. Um, and so the other side of resiliency though, is nurture. Um, and, you know, I think this, we see examples for this all the time and people who, um, you know, in my current job now, I'm uh, one of the uh, chief science officers um, at the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School. And so we see this all the time with kids training up for the Q course or uh, for Ranger School or any sort of intense military training. Um, If you don't expose yourself to thermal stress or even some bouts of sleep deprivation or starvation, while you're doing your training, you're probably not gonna make it through that course because as you know, 
you know, there's this principle in physiology called homeostasis where your body will learn to adapt to a new normal. Um, but if you never expose yourself to a new normal, then, um, you know, it's, it's the same reason why people who were athletes maybe in one area years ago um, decide to do an intense CrossFit workout like Murph and then end up with rhabdomyolysis the next day. Um, it's because you never let your body adapt to those conditions. Um, and so, yeah, I am a big believer in that, you know, if you are doing a hard training event that you have to build up to that because um, your body can and will adapt. That's interesting. So there is a part of resiliency that's genetic, but there's also a part of resiliency that can be trained just like we yep. would train a muscle group. Um, that's interesting to me because I found that in my life, I have significantly changed in terms of the way I think about things and my own resiliency just from the experiences that I've had in CrossFit and, mm-hmm. um, you know, challenging myself in the gym and becoming competitive. And I've, I found that it's impacted my life in positive ways outside of that. And I think a lot of that has to do with training yourself to get used to being uncomfortable and realizing that you can push through something and it'll be okay once you get to the other side of it. Yeah. That's really interesting. No, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I have a similar shared experience um, and, you know, my, my book Meathead Unraveling the Athletic Brain, that's, that's one of the things I write about is, yeah, you know, you uh, will we'll use our first big neuro term today, like neuroplasticity. That's, that's what that training has done. You know, it's not only primed um, better efficiency in your brain for energy utilization, but it's also primed better efficiency uh, in terms of uh, like how you handle emotional stress um, mm-hmm. and has balanced the, that system as well. Yeah, interesting. So going into kind of the mental and emotional side of things, um, can you talk a little bit about the mental health handbook that you had a hand in developing for the NCAA? Yeah, that was, uh, that was super cool. So this was actually the first time that us in the sleep community um, went down the road of studying sleep and athletes. Um, there were about five of us back in 2015, where we put together a symposia at our annual sleep conference around sleep and athletes. Um, because at that time, uh, I had myself, I was doing some work with the NFL on injury rates and how um, injury rates might be tied to times at which games are played. Um, So independent of jet lag, um, how and why is it that um, West Coast teams have a better regular season than East Coast teams? Um, A lot of it has to do with the timing at which games are played relative to their like biological time. Um, And then uh, there was this other researcher who got hired by the University of Arizona and was uh, challenged with basically studying sleep health in um, one of the largest division one programs in the country. Uh, That's Michael Granier. Um, And then there's this sleep physician who um, since has pretty much uh, quit her job at uh, Henry Ford and has started uh, an incredible um, small woman owned business uh, Dr. Mita Singh, where she she is the leading authority uh, sleep doctor in all of professional sports. She has worked with uh, a lot of world championship teams from the Washington Capitals um, to um, 
I, I believe that the Brooklyn Nets, um, she's, she's done it all. Um, and so, yeah, the three of us uh, put together the symposia and it's sort of uh, spearheaded, uh, it got a lot of press. So it sort of spearheaded this uh, initiative. And um, at the time too, the NCAA um, had a really high rate of suicides amongst college athletes in 2013 and 2014. Um, so that was something else that sort of uh, spearheaded this uh, handbook too is um, they were they were trying to take a more holistic approach towards mental health uh, because it was around this time too that research on how eating uh, clean and uh, working out regularly and practicing these you know moments of gratitude things like that in addition to sleep can help benefit mental health in the long term um, especially with the uh, college athletes I mean it's uh I'll tell you from my own personal experiences it's uh it's a, it's a big deal um my um my track coach when she retired uh so I went I did track and field at Brown and when my track coach retired we had this um new woman come in and honestly she eventually got fired by the university because um she was directly responsible for why a lot of women on our team had eating disorders um, and so there's, a, you know, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of pervasive um, mental health issues that go on in sports, uh, far beyond what you see on TV, you know, I, I think across the board, um, if, especially if you look at the more individual sports, when there's a lot of pressure on you and only you to perform, that you see a lot more of these mental health issues, especially in women, you know, it's, uh, to my day, it's, it's, it was painful to see a few of my teammates, you know, go through anorexia and bulimia um, when they didn't have to. So it's, uh, you know, that's another reason why the NCAA realized that they needed to do something about it. So I think you mentioned a couple of them already, but can you just give us some of the highlights from that handbook? How do we, um, how do we tackle mental health in collegiate sports? Yeah, so um, I'll focus first on sleep. Um, so really, all we did there was just, um, you know, talk about the importance of sleep, not just for athletic recovery, um, but for being a good teammate, um, how, you know, it really does sort of uh, ground you emotionally and, and prevents you from overreacting to a situation which happens all the time in sports. Um, and then we provided like helpful sleep tips in terms of um following a very strict bedtime routine and why that bedtime routine exists. Um, in terms of the other aspects of mental health, um, it was really about sort of unraveling the stigma of uh, going to see a sports psychologist or um, somebody on campus for um, not necessarily treatment, but just going to talk to you. You know, um, I think a lot of universities now really do have a great system uh, similar to the army where you can go and, and talk to somebody if you're struggling, um, not just academically, but athletically too, with dealing with uh, the pressures to perform, but also the pressures of, of being on a team because being on any team, whether it's an individual sport or a team sport can be stressful. Um, and you can, you know, go and talk to these individuals and it's anonymous and it's not going to uh, ruin your athletic career or scholarship in any capacity. That's cool. Um, I think there's a lot of parallels there 
from, you know, collegiate sport to just life in general, um, you know, having sleep and being able to respond to situations appropriately, um, you know, being able to talk to somebody without having that stigma. I think there's a lot of carryover just to the real world, I guess. Um, so that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, you know, I always tell people this, but it's true. I will never be anyone important in the army someday because I love sleep too much. Uh, you know, we're slowly changing the culture in the army that sleep is not for the week. Uh, and that sleep is not a crutch, but, um, you know, it's so an organization that selects for short sleepers genetically okay so I have that's my thought is genetically I have an interesting question for you I don't remember if you were the one that originally told me about this um, but I'm curious what your thoughts are Um, I think there was some sort of research that showed that a lot of CEOs military generals things like that they are predispositioned to not need as much sleep and still be able to function at a high capacity. And that kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier with the genetic predisposition for resiliency. Um, Do you think that that is like, is is that real? (laughs) Yes. So uh, it's called the DEC2, D-E-C-2 gene. Um, Yeah, they did a like a big genetic screen in mice to identify it. And then they did um, supporting studies in humans and, yeah, that's my theory. I guarantee if you did a, a you know, genetic, uh, basic genetic profile of some of the, the most successful generals and uh, CEOs and U.S. presidents, they're another one, um, you would find the, uh, the DEC2 mutation. Interesting. So do you think that that's something that just is required to hit that level of performance? Or do you think that that's just something that society has kind of imposed on those positions and we could change that? Well, I am a big proponent of the six hour workday. That was, uh, that was actually something, um, I'm in my, uh, promotion course now for Lieutenant Colonel. And that was one of our, um, argue, argumentative briefs that we, um, you know, provided evidence for that there is a lot of evidence to increase productivity with a six hour workday or maybe uh, 75 minutes of work spaced apart with 15 to 20 minutes of non-work. Well, I think that is true. I think individuals such as Elon Musk, um, you know, just some of the the four star, three star generals, um, you know, I know President Clinton, President Obama, President Trump, I don't know about Biden, but they, uh, they were short sleepers. And I think uh, they're setting the standard, right? Like they, they're able to keep doing that amount of work. And then there's other CEOs or, you know, maybe world leaders, generals who see them working that much that it sort of increases the new standard, but, you know, they, they just naturally are uh, genetically gifted. So even with that genetic predisposition to not need as much sleep, do you think that with these people, you know, put it constantly putting in that much work instead of kind of moving more towards this quote unquote six hour work day, 
Yeah. Do, do you think that their productivity, even with the genetic mutation, do you think that their productivity or their quality of work decreases when they put in that much work? Well, that is a, a very good question. Um, I don't think I've seen any research on the subject, but I would like to hope that they are people who are still integrating that. Um, not so much the six hour workday, but this uh, technique, it's called the Pomodoro technique where you basically work at 25, 25 minutes at a time. Um, and then you space out that 25 minutes with five minutes of rest. And you do that for like three or four cycles with um, 30 minutes of rest in between. Um, that schedule was actually experimental, experimentally validated where they found that, you know, if you look at sustained attention, um, not just through like cognitive tasks of like vigilance, but also if you look at resting state brain activity under like neuroimaging, um, you see that the brain can only attend to something of, of like high focus for 25 minutes. And after that, it it exponentially dissipates. Um, so I'd like to think that they're implementing that technique. You know, I don't think Elon Musk is working uh, 18, even if he is working 18 hours a day, I, I think it's still biologically impossible for him to work at 100% effort for 18 hours a day. So I'd like to think he's using the uh, Pomodoro technique, but. I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's funny. I always noticed, you know, when I was working like an office job or even when I was in school and studying and things like that, I, I never truly quantified it. And I've never heard of the Pomodoro method before, but if I go back and think about it, it's usually around that 20, 25 minute mark yep. where I'm finding myself starting to get distracted by something else. Yep. And I got to yeah. step away for a couple minutes. So that's interesting. Yeah, no, there's, um, it's a, I'm happy that technique was actually um, championed by uh, Wharton Business School and, and Harvard Business School. So it was, it was interesting to me that it came out of like two of the best business schools in the world. That's cool. I like it. Hopefully we see more of that. <laughs> yep, exactly. That's how I live my life. So it's, I'm sure you do too. Yeah. It's like a 20 minute AMRAMP, right? You can only after 20 minutes, you're, you're done. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of anybody who tells me that I get to take breaks or that I need more sleep uh, because you know me, I love sleep. <laughs> yes, yes, don't we all? I mean, so do I. It's funny because a lot of people at work, I have this happen all the time in the army. People are like, it's funny you talk about sleep because you don't sleep. And I'm like, where, where do you get that information from? Like, I literally, if you go back through my whoop archives I literally get seven and a half hours of sleep a night and I'm in bed for like eight hours and 15 minutes so where are you getting this information but it, that's what it is it's productivity right like yeah I pride myself on being efficient and productive and I've figured it out so <laughs> I'm sorry you haven't but yeah I constantly there's a lot of people who I work with who are like think I'm a, the world's biggest hypocrite because I don't sleep but oh my yeah. gosh but and that's because I don't watch tv or netflix I don't I don't have any like bad vices you know oh yeah I watch a lot of netflix that's my vice <laughs> <laughs> but honestly seven and a half to eight hours of sleep is probably on the high end for the army too like oh most of the people that 
And most of the people that are telling are that are talking to you about that are probably looking at four or five hours of sleep a night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I have that data to show too that their combat effectiveness, as we call it, is 15 to 20 percent. So wow. That's why you're, you know, doing 25%. Um, or I'm doing 75% more than you is because you're yeah. not sleeping. <laughs> it sounds counterintuitive but it's not. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I'm just going to take this moment to, um, personally thank you for helping to get the army regulations updated to encourage sleep and tactical napping. Oh, <laughs> I thank really you. appreciate yes. that. <laughs> yeah. Did you see, uh, that the article the other day I got, I finally got made it. I made it big in the army. I made the army times. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that yeah. was awesome. Yeah, I didn't even know about it. Uh, my, one of my old uh, soldiers, when I was in command, texted it to me. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, um, I want to talk to you about your experiences being a female in a lot of male-dominated environments and professions, you know, there's scientific research, the military, government, sport. Um, how has that impacted you and how has that affected how you've gone through life, how you've maybe developed your resiliency and your identity and uh, any struggles that you've experienced with that and how you've overcome them? Oh, sure. Um, well, I'll try not to get too long-winded here. Um, you know, I think uh, broadly, you, you just, you can't take yourselves too seriously. And whatever a, a lot of things men say, you have to realize it comes out of jealousy. Um, and I, I'll say that because I, I told the story to you offline already. Um, so I have this habit now of when I give talks at conferences, if I'm not wearing my military uniform, uh, I always wear white pants because when I was a research fellow, um, at a medical school after I finished my PhD, uh, I was giving a practice job talk in front of uh, a bunch of faculty and a bunch of students. Now, to caveat it, I was the only female faculty member in this department at the time. And uh, one of my, my coworkers decided that he should tell me that I should never wear white pants because they aren't flattering enough to my real job interview. So yeah, I was like, well, what do you mean? Strong as the new skinny. And like that, that's like literally all I could come back with. And I was like, oh, damn, like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I had seen uh, gender discrimination in, in academia before that. Um, you know, the classic stories of the old uh, male professor sleeping with his young female graduate student. I was a, uh, I was very much uh, privy to that in graduate school, uh, too much, too close to comfort. It wasn't me, but, it, you know, it was, it was right there in front of my face all the time. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, you just can't take your, uh, yourself too seriously. And you have to remind yourself really of, uh, things that will happen. So things that will happen is, uh, you know, you can have a group of men and, uh, and I shouldn't generalize because not all men are like this, but a lot of men are, um, where you will 
say something in your area of expertise with authority. And then the same man next to you says it and they listen to him and they don't listen to you. It, it happens all the time. Um, my partner, she's a, she's a neuroscientist too. Um, and, and she deals with it as well. Um, so as long as you go within with those basic assumptions, like otherwise you just have to, uh, you know, hold your own. You have to go out of your way to not emotionally overreact because um, I will say that is one thing that they will hold against you more than anything else. Um, but if, you know, you follow these, uh, guiding rules, uh, or principles, uh, it works out. You know, I had, a, I just finished command of, um, as you know, the, the fleet of truck drivers at Fort Knox. And what's crazy is I was the first ever female commander of this unit and they've been around since 1936. Like, wow. How did it take until 2021 to have a female in charge of any like unit in the military? And we're not even a combat arms unit, right? We're a recruiting unit. But, um, you know, I, I was really humbled when a lot of soldiers told me, because all my soldiers were male, except for one, um, ma'am, you're the first female officer we've ever had and, you know, we've ever worked for and we were nervous at first. Um, just like, because we didn't know what to expect from you, but like, you've totally changed our perspective on female leaders. And I was like, oh, well, thank you. You know, so, and you met a lot of those guys. They, they are, they're good dudes out at the uh, CrossFit games. They were great. That's yeah. so awesome. It, it's wild that it took that long to have a female in command of that company. But I think if any female was going to do it, you were one of the best options. And I love yeah. that so much. <laughs> no, it's, uh, yeah, it's good. I mean, um, I would say my inspiration for trying to create those, uh, or blaze those trails, whether intentionally or non-intentionally, um, comes from my high school track coach. So, um, my, my high school track coach was like that. She's one of the most highly regarded, respective, uh, female coaches in the sport of track and field, not just in the state of Ohio, but nationally. Um, but she pushed charge hard forward um, to have girls pole vault be contested at the state meet. Um, so you might not know this. I was actually one of the first female pole vaulters in the state of Ohio uh, because of my track coach. So she was like, she thought it was ridiculous that the state thought that girls should not pole vault because we weren't strong enough and we were likely to get injured. Like that's the legitimate reason why. <laughs> Um, but yeah, when I was a junior in high school in 2002, that was the very first year girls were allowed to pole vault. Um, but the crazy part about that statistic, because, um, you know, after high school and after I pole vaulted in college, I, I still coach uh, pole vault now. Um, I see a lot more injuries with guys and it makes sense, right? You have these young high school boys with a lot of testosterone, either trying to impress each other or trying to impress girls. And then they you know, lose all awareness of where they are. And next thing you know, they get injured, um, you know, either very seriously or, you know, just like uh, they just get injured. So it's, yeah, it, it's definitely been a journey. And I, I know you've seen it too. Um, you know, what's interesting though, is the one place I've never felt any discrimination um, either through gender or I've never really seen any like even you know, LGBT related, um, I can't speak on race related discrimination, but like 
the CrossFit community. You know, I think since day one, there's a reason why um, a lot of um, socially oppressed groups um, join CrossFit from women to um, the LGBT community to, um, I mean, you and I as, as fellow Jews, like, uh, you know, there's, you and I probably have several stories about anti-Semitism in, in our lives and, um, you know, uh, people of different colors and, and races, like it's, it's really an all accepting community. Yeah, it really is. And one of the things I, I loved from a guest I had on a couple of weeks ago, and she was talking about why she loved CrossFit so much and, and just, you know, weightlifting in general and things like that. She said, the bar doesn't care if you're a man, woman, black, white, gay, straight, whatever, like it's just a bar and you're going to yeah. lift it or you're not. And that's that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's yeah. kind of like the environment that's been created within the CrossFit community is it doesn't matter who you are, what you are. It matters what you do and how hard you try and the effort that you put in. And that's it. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think, uh, honestly, the, uh, the army's kind of like that too. I actually, I, you know, I left academia. Uh, I, I will not go back to academia unless I am a president of a university. That is my, that is the only way I'm going back. Like if I'm at the top and changing things because academia for as much as they like tout themselves as like super liberal and super, super like welcoming. No, they like create the problem more than they can consciously realize. Um, <laughs> so I've, I, you know, between the army and CrossFit, I found more inclusivity than, than anything else. Yeah, I love it. Um, was there ever a point in your life where you didn't kind of have that, um, that strength to just realize that, you know, people saying don't wear white pants because they're not flattering, um, like where, where that kind of stuff got to you instead of you just being able to brush it off and say, no, they're just, that's their, that's their problem to deal with, not mine. Yeah, um, I think part of the reason I never let it get to me um, was because I was able to surround myself with females who were going through it with me together. And so we sort of protected each other from it. Like, you know, it, it really was a strong sisterhood. Um, you know, even in college, when we had this, this track coach who um, broke down, uh, was able to effectively break down a lot of my teammates and set them on this path of destruction. Um, there were still in the background, a group of us who prevented her from doing, you know, even more damage to the team. And, you know, a lot of it is uh, like self-deprecation and humor and sarcasm, but it, it works. Um, in graduate school is the same thing. Like my lab mates and I had to band together when, you know, we heard about this, like one professor you know, having uh, illicit affairs with a graduate student. It's, um, we, we banded together, together to get shit done. Um, and, and same as a postdoc, um, you know, it's interesting that the postdoc, like, again, I was the only female in this department. Like I was at Morehouse School of Medicine, which is a historically black old male school. Um, and uh, it, it took my CrossFit community to like, 
they weren't with me at work. So I sort of had to like band together with the secretaries and the ad and like the administrators who are female. Um, but yeah, same thing. Yeah. That, that seems to be a recurring theme on the episodes that I've recorded so far. A lot of people talk about finding your tribe, finding your community, surrounding yep. yourself with a good support group. And that can make the world of difference for so many things in your life. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, even in the army too, but like I said, I honestly, I've had great experiences in the army compared to academia. Like I, you know, I love speak uh, in two weeks at our annual circadian rhythms conference. I'm talking about careers outside of academia and it's like, I really have to hold back talking about how much I hated it. Um, but, and, and the thing is, is like, what I try to remind people is I hated it because of this discrimination, not because I wasn't successful. And in fact, I was very successful. I got all the grants. I, I'm four for four for NIH grants. Like I have, wow. a, I have a good track record. Uh, I published in the top journals. I spoke at the best conferences in the world. I did everything you expect of an academic. I taught classes, was a great educator, but I hated the discrimination and that's why I left. Yeah. Well, one thing I like to ask a lot of my guests is if you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? Um, I think it would be to, uh, to sometimes not take things too seriously. Um, that is something I still struggle with, um, is, uh, you know, I'm, I've been lucky in that I've been immersed in a world of high performers and a lot of times people who are high performers, um, are perfectionists. And um, I always find in the army that uh, like, you know, you have to be a perfectionist a lot of times, rightfully so, because, you know, lives are, are, are at risk. Um, but with that, I would not like to apologize so much for when I'm not perfect. And, and that's one thing I, I'm still working on. And I'm honestly, my, my partner more than anything has helped me with that is not apologizing when I mess up, especially when I mess up in front of a group of men, she's like, you can't apologize. They are going to hold that against you. So um, that's what I would tell my, my younger self is to not take myself too seriously and to, uh, or what I'm doing too seriously and to apologize less. I like that. I like it a lot. Well, we'll wrap it up. Um, I told you this was coming, so I hope you prepared. Oh. Um, the final question I have Allison, can you give me your best dad joke? My best dad joke? Yeah. Oh, shoot. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I only know like bad jokes. So <laughs> like inappropriate jokes. Yeah, that's like the only <laughs> jokes I know. I shouldn't. Oh, man. All right. If you can't think of one, I've got one as backup. So just let me know. I can't, I can't think. I can't think of one. All right. Are I you ready for this? No bad joke. <laughs> All right. What did Buddha say to the hot dog vendor? What did What did he say? Make me one with everything.
<laughs> I love it. That's a good one. That is a very good one. Well, Allison, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation and it was great catching up with you. Yes, absolutely. Always good to see your face. And I hope to be cheering in the stands for you in three weeks when you uh, uh, seal your ticket to the games. Yes, I hope so. Um, where can people find you? Instagram, Facebook, website, anything? Yeah, so um, you can buy my book on Amazon. It's Meathead Unraveling the Athletic Brain. Um, and you can find me on Instagram. It's Doc Jock ZZZ. So D O C J O C K Z Z Z. Awesome. Thanks, Allison. You're welcome.